I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with privacy attorney Adam Green of the law firm Davis Wright Tremaine about recent important privacy and security regulatory developments for the healthcare sector to keep its eyes on. So, Adam, the Department of Health and Human Services earlier this year issued final information blocking and health IT interoperability rules meant to promote secure health information exchange among providers and easier access to electronic health information by patients. So, with that said, what are some of the biggest issues that healthcare providers should know about complying with these rules? The ONC and CMS rules that were published on May 1st include a number of different requirements, information blocking prohibitions, APIs to new requirements to proactively send out admit discharge transfer notices. And they've got various different dates, but the big one on the horizon is with respect to the prohibition on information blocking. I can't overestimate how big of a challenge it is to implement this. I mean, first off, for decades, or for that matter, going back to the Hippocratic Oath for centuries, we've been told, don't disclose medical information. And now we suddenly have a regulation that says, if you don't disclose certain medical information, you are going to be information blocking and subject to potential penalties. So this is is a complete reversal from kind of traditional health information privacy and security regulations. And I think the big challenges that healthcare providers are going to see is, one, identifying all the different practices that could potentially be information blocking because they, quote, interfere with access, exchange, or use of electronic health information. That could be refusing to provide access to a patient or a third party who's got a valid authorization to certain medical record information. It could be delaying test results because there's a feeling that the clinician should have an opportunity to speak with the patient first. It could be anything that is done to discriminate on access through an API. So while information blocking doesn't have affirmative obligations in the sense that it's not that you suddenly have to start doing new things you do have to look at all the things that you're doing that in any way impede the flow of electronic health information and analyze whether it falls under an exception. And, you know, we've actually created a toolkit to help our clients because they're finding themselves overwhelmed with the process of finding each third party where they potentially exchange electronic health information identifying each system, whether it be a software system or kind of a people process that is involved with those exchanges. And then for each system, identifying what could be dozens of practices that could be seen as interfering with access exchange or use. That could be charging a fee, requiring software, overly onerous security provisions, a range of different things could qualify as information blocking. And for each such practice, and there could end up being hundreds of them, you have to go through the analysis of being able to show that it falls under an exception. So it's a pretty Herculean task that we're seeing a lot of healthcare providers spinning their wheels trying to kind of tackle this. 
So, Adam, you mentioned some of the difficulties involved with complying with the information blocking rule. What are some of the trouble spots that you foresee chief information security officers and healthcare organizations security teams running into when trying to have their organizations comply with these rules? What kind of situations will they potentially run into? So, you know, one example is um, on the security side, there is an exception related to information security for a practice that interferes with access exchange or use of EHI, but it's limited. So, for example, if a entity comes knocking and says, I'd like certain electronic health information that you have for purposes of, say, a quality assessment or something like that, certainly you can continue to make sure that you only disclose in a secure manner. But there are certain things like putting in place a contract that requires them to meet certain security standards that may not fall within the security exception. So there's a lot of cases of people not wanting to share or healthcare providers not wanting to share their information with others who might not have good security, but that actually may represent information blocking. So we have a challenge there. I think we have on the privacy side, there's historically been all this discretion that the privacy rule only requires two categories of disclosures, disclosures to the individual who's the subject of the information or their designee, and disclosures to HHS. Everything else under the privacy rule is really discretionary. But now all that has to be revisited because everything that was discretionary now potentially may be a required disclosure, at least where it's requested, under the information blocking rules. And so I think privacy officers are going to have to look at their role a bit differently where there's a lot less discretion than there used to be. And then culturally, you know, it's been decades since the HIPAA privacy rule provided doctors have to provide access to their records. And we're still seeing fights over culture where doctors don't necessarily think that patients should be able to see certain information and information blocking just will continue that culture war. Doctors oftentimes don't want test results going until they've had an opportunity to talk to the patient. They don't feel like the patient can handle it. And those are pretty ingrained attitudes within the medical staff, but are likely contrary to information blocking requirements if you're knowingly delaying test results, for example, just because you think that the patient can't emotionally handle it without some additional education. And so there's going to be, I think, a lot of battles because really information blocking is now more or less saying your electronic health information belongs to the world to some degree. You don't get to always decide when you don't share it. So, Adam, what are the potential penalties for noncompliance? That is a really good question, and we don't have the answers yet. So the information blocking regulations apply to more or less three categories of, quote, actors. One is healthcare providers. The second is health information exchanges and health information networks, which have been put together as kind of one category. And the third is developers of certified health information technology, which could encompass the actual software developer, but could also encompass someone who offers certified health IT technology, such as a healthcare provider who offers certified health IT technology to unaffiliated community providers through, you know, the the different vendors have their own different programs for offering that functionality. And so we have penalties 
of up to a million dollars per violation for the second and third category for health IT developers and health information exchanges and networks. And those, you know, a healthcare provider could fall under one of those categories also based on what they're doing. The um, OIG has actually issued a proposed regulation with respect to those penalties, but hasn't issued a final regulation yet. So until a final regulation is issued, we don't know when those penalties will be enforced. But there's a lot less certainty with respect to healthcare providers as the regulations and the statute just provide that HHS should leverage existing enforcement authorities with respect to healthcare providers, but we're still awaiting a, a proposed, let alone a final rule, as to what that will actually look like. So we don't yet know what the penalties are going to look like for healthcare providers. So, Adam, the compliance date for the HHS information blocking and health IT certification rules is November 2nd, but it looks like there's a possibility that HHS might delay that date due to the COVID-19 response efforts by healthcare providers. Any idea how long the extension might last if there is an extension? No idea at this point. I mean, all we know is that there seems to be an interim final rule that has gone to the Office of Management and Budget that seems to pertain to information blocking extensions with respect to COVID-19. Now, there was previously extensions of certain deadlines, just not this particular November 2nd deadline. So we don't know whether this interim final rule will extend the November 2nd deadline, and if it does, for how long but it seems like a pretty good possibility. So now, Adam, regarding other health data privacy and security regulatory issues, I understand that California recently moved to exempt HIPAA de-identified information from the state's California Consumer Privacy Act. What's the significance of that? It's a little tweak that, for a few, can make a big difference. So the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, has a definition of de-identified, and it's a bit different from the definition of de-identified under HIPAA. And so that difference could lead to some problems here and there. It could lead to problems if you are an entity that works with HIPAA de-identified information, because that information may be de-identified under HIPAA, but may still have been subject to CCPA, and that could cause significant challenges. Um, It is very hard to comply with CCPA with respect to information that's been de-identified under HIPAA, even though CCPA may still technically apply before this legislative change. And then it also makes things easier for covered entities, where, for example, a covered entity might have a permission in its business associate agreement that the business associate may de-identify information under HIPAA, but if it didn't also fall within the CCPA definition of de-identified, then that could cause some problems because the covered entity could be seen as allowing the business associate to create personal information or handle personal information in its own manner, and that could actually create sale of personal information issues under CCPA. So it's a really complicated, weird area that caused by this difference that now um, assuming that this legislation is not vetoed by the governor in the next month will go away. Now, Everyone who is subject to HIPAA, if it's been de-identified under HIPAA, they don't need to worry about CCPA with respect to that de-identified information. So it makes life much easier. 
And Adam, anything else from a health data privacy and security perspective that we should be keeping a close eye on before the end of 2020 and into early 2021? So certainly OCR, the Office for Civil Rights, is continuing its emphasis on the right of access. They just published five different settlements with respect to covered entities not providing access to protected health information. You know, these were relatively modest settlement sizes compared to, say, some of the headlines we've seen in the past. But in light of the nature, you know, this is not a breach of hundreds or thousands of records, but rather a single person not getting access to their record, it was tens of thousands of dollar penalty for something like that, or settlement amount, I should say, is pretty significant. So that continues to be an emphasis and certainly an area that healthcare providers should check that they're fully compliant in. And then we've heard that OCR has indicated they expect to put out a proposed rule following up on the December 2018 request for information within the next few months. So I know from having worked over at OCR in the past, a lot of that timing is out of the hands of OCR as it goes to the departmental clearance. So you can never hold someone, the agency, to a time frame, but it certainly shows that you can't forget about those changes, which include some additional coordination of care provisions and also potentially provisions on accounting of disclosures. So stay tuned on that. Thanks, Adam. I've been speaking to attorney Adam Green. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.